This is a story about art. It's about how art connects and illuminates. It's a story about an artist who went all around the world in the service of U.S. foreign relations. And it's about the surprising afterlife of the art that she made. I'm Abby Mullen, and this is Consolation Prize, a podcast about the United States and the world through the eyes of its consuls. Today, we're veering into unfamiliar territory, for us at least, into the world of 20th century diplomacy, after the creation of the modern foreign service in 1924. I want to make it clear that the story you're going to hear today is only a tiny fraction of this truly remarkable life. We're leaving out so very much. And you're not going to hear much of my voice at all today. Instead, you're mostly going to hear from the artist herself, voiced by an actor, and from the man who's trying to give her art new life in the places where she created it. Prologue, Gold Leaf Studios, mid-2000s. I normally buy frames at the Tuesday junk auction, not far from my studio. And one day it was a cold February and no one was there and no one was bidding. And so the auctioneer said, Bill, look at those drawings. Why don't you raise your hand? So I flipped through them and I raised my hand and there was no one else bidding for them. So I ended up bidding against myself a few times to get the price up. And I got them for a song, basically. Uh, They were in the detritus of junk of humanity. And so I, I didn't know what to do with them. I put them on a shelf when I came back to the studio and I forgot about them. About a year later, somebody from GW called. We've, we've taken kids from there as interns before and wanted to know if she could uh, go to a conservation school and get some experience by volunteering with me. So she came in one Saturday and quite frankly, I really didn't know what to do with her. Uh, her name was Genevieve Binisak. I had her take them apart and clean them and mat them and do different things uh, to try to figure out what we could do with them. All of them were signed, but the signature was illegible. In one of the pieces, it was matted, and it was an acid-bearing mat, so we took it apart. And um, inside of it was a, a postcard from Hyde Park, Franklin Delano Roosevelt home. Presidential Library is there. And uh, there legibly was her name written, printed on the postcard, a sketch of FDR, Irina B. Wiley. I'm William Adair. I'm the owner of Goldleaf Studios. And uh, I'm the owner of uh, about 90 uh, paintings and drawings of um, Irina Wiley's.
So we Googled it and literally the floodgates opened. The next stage was to try to sell them because we're in the business of buying and selling art and frames. And the more I realized how important she was, the less I wanted to sell them. The more I was intrigued about the story rather than any cash reward. After all, I didn't have a lot in them, so I didn't have to worry about it too much. Uh, we began to uh, mat them. I had them conserved by a colleague of mine uh, at the Folger Library. Uh, Frank Mowry was a paper conservator, and he took the entire batch and deacidified them. They were moldy. They were stuck together. They they clearly had been in a basement somewhere from our asse initial assessment. It was in a portfolio, and the drawings ranged from unbelievable detailed uh, black and white uh, drawings from uh, the 20s that resembled the work of Picasso and Leger. Not the Cubists, but the more solidly drawn uh, material. We, we decided that they needed some special treatment, and uh, then I began to frame them really beautifully and admire them, put them up on my wall, and basically try to figure out where we were going. So I hired a curator from a friend from the National Portrait Gallery, uh, Molly Grimsley, the, uh, the registrar. Molly said, uh, Annabelle Champion is here with uh, the National Portrait Gallery in London. I'd like you to meet her. And she came in and she said, hey, can I have a job? And I hired her on the spot. I appointed Annabelle to be the curator of the project. And she basically did the most fantastic job up and running with it. We were looking for a copy of Irina Wiley's book that we had read about. So Annabelle went to the local bookstore and walked in, it was a used bookstore, and um, she found a copy of her book. And uh, so she brought it back, and in the inside cover was written, this book belongs to Senator Claiborne Pell. He died, books were sold, they bought it. And of course, I became excited because he was mentioned in the book as one of her collaborators in art and culture. So that was a wonderful moment of serendipity again. I began to really fully appreciate the depth of her diplomacy. Act One, Toulon, France, 1934. John Cooper Wiley has just been appointed part of the diplomatic legation to Moscow. But first, he needs to take care of some important business. It was a warm Mediterranean day in April. We were solemnly seated, John and I, on huge, 
gilded and most uncomfortable armchairs in the Renaissance room of the town hall of Toulon. This unimpressive and jet-propelled ceremony was the culmination of months of red tape, paperwork, endless preparation. If you must be married abroad, choose any place on the map, even a lamissary in Tibet, but don't get married in France. In the next 20 years, we were to be stationed in Russia, Belgium, Austria, Estonia, Latvia, Colombia, Portugal, Iran, Panama, and Washington, not counting trips to Turkey, Lebanon, China, Japan, and Greece, and to almost all the countries of South America. She was the wife of John Wiley, a uh, highly skilled diplomat. He was appointed to go to uh, Moscow. Exciting moment for Irina Wiley, his new wife. She was from Poland, from Łódź, Poland. She was the daughter of a very wealthy uh, merchant, a Jewish merchant. And in the 20s, uh, they were uh, some of the most successful people in their town, and she was a very notable person. She went to the Sorbonne. She went to the Slade School in London. She was one of the artists, a beautiful artist. And John Wiley was a guy from Indiana who was a diplomat. And she spoke many languages. And I just want to say that there is always the power behind someone. And uh, it is, in my opinion, she was the mastermind behind his success. Act Two, Vienna, Austria, 1938. John Wiley is serving as the U.S. Chargé d'Affaires and Consul General ad interim at the U.S. legation to Vienna. Adolf Hitler is beginning to move into Austria in what is called the Anschluss. Wiley is charged with closing down the American legation. But first, he has to deal with a flood of people trying to leave Austria ahead of Hitler. From Innsbruck to Brenner Pass, Austrian independence was crushed beneath the heels of goose-stepping Nazi legions. The hand of friendship is extended with a mailed fist, with the now historic lifting of the border gate, a tragic symbol of surrender. Millions jammed country lanes and city streets to gain a glimpse of the man who proclaimed himself a leader of a peaceful country of seven million. Here we witness the history-making march that has shaken the entire world. True, a peaceful invasion, but one of submission rather than a triumphant conquest by the Nazi legion. Through the tranquil, colorful town of Lentz, march and ride the army of gray-clad invaders heralding the approach of the new dictator, returning to his native land for the first time in 24 years. It is not the physical or even the moral suffering 
that I remember most vividly of this nightmarish period. It is what the degradation did to some people. Circe transformed men into swine. Hitler, in one day, transformed them into cringing brutes. From under flat stones, from the cracks of walls, emerged the underground Nazis, the card-bearing Austrians. Their day had come. They seized the keys of the city. They assumed the right of life and death over all who were not their kind, and how they used their power. To see primeval cruelty emerge in civilized man terrifies the soul. John understood so well the importance of human dignity that the first thing he did after Hitler had seized Austria was to assemble the entire staff of the legation from counselor to office boy. He told them, thousands of people are coming to ask for help. For most of them, there is little or nothing that we can do. You will be tired, overworked, and irritable, but I still ask you always to treat each of them with sympathy, courtesy, and when you can't do anything for them, when nothing else is available, Give them your time and sympathy so that here, at least, they will be respected human beings and not hunted animals. During the first few weeks, I helped out, stamping visa applications, thus releasing the office boys for more important work. The problem was to get visas for refugees so that they could leave Austria. It was impossible to help everyone. Being a sculptress, I decided insofar as possible to concentrate on artists. If a hopeless visa applicant was a painter, a sculptor, a musician, he would be sent directly to me. Then with the help of the Quakers, the Jewish Joint Relief, or other diplomatic missions, and many private citizens, I would try to get the required visas, visas for any place of refuge in the outside world. They were lined up at the, at the consulate. Many of the drawings I have are in watercolors, are hers while she was in the waiting room sketching these poor people, basically sentenced to death if she couldn't get them a exit visa. So she took their names and called people in the United States so she was just shooting in the dark from the hip, calling a name, the same name, and saying, would you sponsor this person? And she would, and they would say yes. So they put their address down on the exit visa, and they would get to the uh, Nazi-controlled uh, uh, train station, airports, and with that name on it, then the Nazis would call and verify that this was true, and all the paperwork is in a line, and these people were got out. Hundreds of them. I asked her nephew, Tony Schultz. I said, Tony, your, your aunt was really a remarkable person. 
what are you most proud of for her? And he said, well, we've talked about it, the family, and we really admire her for many things, but we're the most proud for the unknown people that were saved by her. Hundreds, if not thousands. remember particularly one day shortly after Hitler had taken over Vienna that John telephoned me saying the SS are at Professor Freud's house I'm worried about him take the car with the flag flying and go there at once I'll see what can be done to protect him but hold the fort in the meantime off I went when I got to Freud's house I had to push past two armed SS men who guarded the door to his apartment There in the front room, I was faced by a scene of vandalism and destruction, which later, alas, became an everyday sight. Six SS men were pulling books off the shelves, tearing out the pages and throwing them on the floor. The rest were breaking furniture. John had explained to me the psychology of brutality and advised me that the only way to deal with bullies was to bully even more. So with a rude and commanding voice, I told them to stop immediately and asked to see the officer in charge. He was not there. I commanded them to get out immediately. And strangely enough, they did. Of course, I had no business there. Freud was not an American citizen and the SS could have thrown me out. John was right. A show of authority left them flustered and uncertain. I then looked for Freud and found him in his library, which, being at the far end of the apartment, had not yet been reached by the SS. He was sitting calm and undisturbed behind a huge desk, which was entirely covered by his collection of Egyptian statuettes. From time to time, I tried to talk to him about his future. I told him that John wanted to help him get out of Vienna and asked where he wanted to go. He brushed these questions aside and resumed his talk about Egyptian religions. Only once did he flare up. It was when I asked him if he would like to go to America. To America, never. The country where psychoanalysts have taken my thoughts and my theories and then prostituted them, never, never. I stayed with him for a few hours until John had somehow or other arranged with the Nazi authorities to leave him in peace. Freud later left for England. Wealthy friends paid a substantial bribe to the Gestapo. Act 3. Tallinn, Estonia, and Riga, Latvia, 1940. While Germany is invading countries throughout Europe, the Soviet Union is advancing more quietly into the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. John and Arena Wiley are appointed to Estonia and Latvia, just as the Soviets move in. They moved to Estonia. He was the minister. He was the ambassador there, having had experience with the Bolsheviks in 1919. 
and the Soviets were doing what they're doing today. They're taking over their neighboring countries. And Irina uh, was childless at this point, and she wanted to adopt a child that was going to be shipped to Siberia on the trains. They just basically went in and rounded everybody up and put them in cattle cars and shipped them all to Siberia. After the Russians had been there a week, our doorbell rang in the middle of the night, and in came the wife of the cabinet minister, hiding under a shawl, a two-year-old little girl. She told us that her husband had already been arrested and deported, and that her turn would probably come next. Would we please take her little girl as our own? I took the child and promised to take care of her. John was still in the office, as all were working endless hours. But I knew that even if this was a violation of some State Department regulation, John would approve. When he came back and was presented with lovely, blue-eyed, blonde Trudy, he accepted with calm and a smile this unexpected paternity. The difficulty was that if the Russians knew that we had Trudy, they would make trouble. Since the child was not an American citizen, we would have been helpless. We kept her sleeping in her room during the day, and at night, we played with her in the garden. That period has remained in my mind as the sleepless month, but the GPU never discovered the child. The serious problem was how to get the child out of Latvia. We tried to adopt her officially, but this would have taken many months, and we were obliged by the Russians to leave within a few weeks. To put her on our passport without formal adoption was against American law. We were desperate, since, of course, under no circumstances would we leave Trudy. I had visions of wrapping myself and the child in a large American flag and thus protected sit out the war in Latvia. Salvation came from a very kind-hearted Danish charge d'affaires. Denmark's citizenship laws luckily are more humanitarian and elastic than ours, with much discretion left to their chiefs of mission. When he heard of our dilemma, this charming Dane had his housekeeper adopt Trudy, giving her a new surname and putting her on the housekeeper's passport. She was leaving for Sweden very soon and would take the child to Stockholm. From there, friends of ours would bring Trudy to Washington to meet us. We did not keep Trudy. The night before her planned departure for Stockholm, her mother came and took her away. For weeks, she tried to bear the idea of parting, probably forever, from her only child. But when the moment came, she could not. With a heavy heart, I watched her leave the safety of the legation, with her child fiercely clasped in her arms. She was going to try to get out of Latvia through the green frontier into Germany. The George Washington of Estonia, uh, General Ledner and his wife were shipped as well. And Irina was quite friendly with them and tried to help them, but to no, no prevail. I own a black scarf of lovely Chantilly lace. The scarf is light and soft, but for me, it is a hair shirt because woven in the intricate design of human despair, 
is a recollection of my inadequacy, my failure in keeping a promise. It had to do with our friends, the Leideners, who lived on a small country estate just outside of Tallinn. A few days after the Soviet occupation, they let us know they wanted to see us. We drove immediately from Riga to their place. Their three boxers greeted us joyously at the door. The general and his wife were as urbane outwardly as though nothing untoward had happened. The general took John for a walk to show him more than a thousand young trees he had planted. He gave no indication that he did not expect to see them grow to maturity. In the meantime, Mrs. Leidener talked to me alone in the garden. Women are not soldiers. We do not live by the same code as men, perhaps because we had nothing to do in drawing it up. Our heroism is not in pretending that we do not care and that we are not afraid. When we were left alone, Mrs. Leidener handed me the lovely black scarf and said, This lace has been in our family for three generations. I will never be able to use it again. I want you to have it and to think about me when you wear it. I was taken by surprise and said, but why won't you be able to use it? She looked at me with eyes filled with grief and acceptance. Don't you understand? Don't you see that this house, this garden, are already our prison, that any minute we could be deported? We left the Leideners and returned to the legation. That night they were deported. They entered the communist darkness at midnight. It was some months before we reached Washington. I am sure that Mr. Roosevelt did everything he could, but to no avail. They were probably already dead. There was no charge, no indictment, no trial. They were simply eliminated, obliterated. General Leidener's crime was patriotism. I just wanted the people, I wanted people to know about Irina Wiley. That's really my motivation, not really to sell the stuff, but it's just that because of these things happening, I felt it was my personal obligation. Uh, well, I don't know why, but I just, I just felt compelled. And so we kept throwing stuff against the wall and nothing happened. State Department, straight arm. Polish embassy, straight arm. I was lamenting this to one of my colleagues in, uh, in my field is a man named Peter Sepp. And Peter and I have worked together for 40 years. He is the gold leaf supplier. And I uh, just happened to be talking one day and I said, Peter, aren't you, weren't your uh, parents for, from some Eastern European country? And he goes, yeah, yeah, we were uh, Estonian, Bill. And then he got really excited about what I had told him. And he gave a grant to the Estonia House, which he was a member in New York, that was uh, enabled us to contact the Estonian Museum, have enough money to frame everything and mat it properly and ship it to Estonia and it went to five museums in Estonia. Viimases ajal see USA saadiku abikaasa Irina Wiley portreede näituse. Portreed leiti juhusikult ühelt Washingtoni oksjonilt. 
Suursaadik John Wiley abikaasaga olid viimased laidoneride külalised nende viimsi mõisas laidoneride pahistamise eelõhtul aastal 1940. And the show was going to come down and there was just enough money left and the curator really wanted me to come and it was in August in Washington and you know that's not a happy time here with the heat and humidity and the thought of going to you know close to the arctic circle was wonderful so i i bit the bullet and did it and i never regret that trip at all it was one of the most eye opening heart wrenching episodes in my life I was at the last venue in a town called Hapslau and everything was there beautifully done and uh we were waiting for the town the mayor and the local people and the press to come and there was a pretty big reception and crowd coming this was a, this was a big deal for their town and so the mayor comes in and starts talking about the show and diplomacy and how art is a device for bringing people together uh and how wonderful she said uh that this event was for their country and for their people as a nation uh it recalled all of the times of their national pride before the soviets had taken over and um she said oh and by the way uh general ladner's wife survived the the time in Siberia during the war she was one of the few people who actually survived and when she came back she lived in the town of Hapslau as an older woman and here's the kicker right now she turned to me and she said and isn't it wonderful that these two friends are together again I didn't quite realize how important that statement was. As a conceptual artist, I have been exploring the ideas quite frequently nowadays that the uh the perception of this, the moment when she said that, I actually felt that they were together. And it became a quest for me to continue finding a proper home for her artworks act 4 tehran iran 1950 After World War II, the Soviet Union began pushing for even more territory, including its southern neighbor Iran. John and Irena Wiley were sent to Iran in the midst of this tense time for the country. Summary of a telegram from John Wiley, March 17, 1949. Our ambassador in Tehran states that the Soviet propaganda buildup against Iran is so similar to that which preceded the annexation of the Baltic states. as to be alarming. He says that the Soviets have established a juridical case for intervention in Iran under the Treaty of 1921 and that in his opinion 
The question of their return to Iran is only one of timing. He points out that the USSR might well make a move in Iran in order to regain the initiative after its recent setbacks, and particularly the conclusion of the North Atlantic Pact, and believes that the Soviets might well be able to reoccupy Azerbaijan and terrorize the Iranian government into removing itself from the Western orbit without the risk of a shooting war. From the time of Peter the Great, the Tsarist regime had coveted Iran, then called Persia, both for its value as a borderland and for its strategic position in the traditional Russian aim to encircle Turkey, reach India, and dominate the Persian Gulf. The communist regime of Moscow inherited this geographical objective and made a vain effort to extract Hitler's promise of a free hand in November 1940. After the war in 1946, it required the hue and cry of the General Assembly of the United Nations, backed by President Truman, to induce the Red Army to withdraw from Iranian Azerbaijan. Stalin, however, continued to place obstacles in the way of the stabilization of Iran and to oppose Iran's link of friendship with the West, especially with the United States. The Soviet propaganda war reached fever pitch during our official stay in Tehran. In a period of hot and irritable peace along Iran's whole northern frontier, the political pot at certain moments threatened to boil over. To watch for every sign of unrest, every movement of troops, every blast on the Soviet radio or in the communist press of Iran was like following the zigzag course of a fever chart of a patient in a hospital. We had a small uh, presentation at the uh, Center for Diplomacy, and it was when uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. They were just developing it, and she said to me, this is really remarkable work. What a great discovery. And she was particularly interested in the paintings that Irene had done when they were in Iran in the 1950s. They, we have drawings of paintings of the Shah of Iran, of many notable people. Uh, Secretary Clinton said that if things could be normalized between Iran, it would be wonderful to send this show to Tehran as a moment in time of our diplomacy. And this is what brings people together who are warring. Art is the healing device for humanity. Act 5, Vietnam, 1968. Irena Wiley published her memoir, Around the Globe in 20 Years, in 1962. That's what you've been hearing excerpts from. John Wiley died in 1967. New York Times, February 3rd, 1967. John Cooper Wiley, former ambassador and member of the Foreign Service for 38 years, died this morning at the Washington Hospital Center after a short illness. He was 73 years old. At various times, Mr. Wiley served as ambassador to Colombia, Portugal, Iran, and Panama. 
He was the American Chargé d'Affaires in Vienna at the time of the German takeover in 1938, and he was the United States Minister to Latvia and Estonia two years later when the Soviet Union invaded those countries. He is survived by his widow, the former Irena M. Baruch. So Irena did what she had done for her whole life. She traveled and she made art. I won't guarantee it. I was still counting when we left. There's our ambassador, Ellsworth Bunker. General James K. Woolno, commanding general of the Continental Army Command. And General George S. Brown, 7th Air Force Command. We better salute and get to work. Huh? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here we are in Vietnam. Yes, sir. So much for your bombing halt. <laughs> and today we're at Long Bend, Vietnam's answer to She traveled with the USO on what were called handshake tours, where celebrities visited soldiers in hospitals and on bases. She didn't perform with the more famous USO tours like Bob Hope. Instead, she did something much more personal. She went into hospitals with wounded soldiers and drew them and sketched them and gave them their drawings. That was her contribution to the war effort, uh, the healing. And so somewhere out there are paintings of U.S. soldiers in their families they probably don't know what they have, but it's probably, uh, they're, I'm sure they're mementos of, of people in their family. So it's, it's nice to know that she spread that, that as well. Somewhere out there, maybe in your attic, there are portraits of Vietnam veterans drawn by this remarkable woman. I asked Bill if he had a favorite of the pieces that he had rescued from that junk auction. There's probably one that um, is the most important drawing. It's uh, of a mother and child. It's very empathetic. Uh, It's a watercolor with blue and gold. And it's very endearing because the child is looking into the mother's face. It's almost like a Madonna and child uh, thing, but it's not a religious thing. But uh, Annabelle determined that this was one of the pieces from uh, the... uh, the deportees uh, to Auschwitz. She lent it, or we, we lent it, to the, uh, to the Jewish Museum for, uh, for a show in New York several years ago. And uh, when it's all said and done, it would be nice to donate that piece to them too, where they would appreciate it, know what it is. Hopefully, uh, all these things that I rescued will come to final resting spot where it belongs, who knows. Uh, It just takes 60 or 70 years for things to sort themselves out. But uh, eventually everything evens out in the end, I'm convinced, if it's meant to be. Uh, the, The most important part of these objects are, are not the objects, clearly. It's, it's the memory 
of what happens there. Usually, you'd hear the credits here, and we'll get to those in a moment. But this is a different kind of an episode from our normal one. There are still people alive today who knew Irena Wiley, and who might have stories to tell us about her. There are also likely people who own pieces of her art and may not even know it. We want to hear those stories and find that art. So we need your help. The first way you can help is by sharing this episode with everyone you know, on social media, telling your friends, anyone you know. But if you think you might have encountered Irena Wiley at some time, we really, really want to hear from you. You can email us at consolationprizepod at gmail.com, or you can reach out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or you can even leave us a voicemail on our website, consolationprize.rrchnm.org. Please spread the word. This is just the beginning of our journey into Irena Wiley's story, so please help us find out as much as we can about her. Okay, here's the credits. Consolation Prize is a podcast of R2 Studios at George Mason University. This episode was produced by me, Abby Mullen, and our amazing graduate intern, Frankie Bjork. Special thanks to Bill Adair of Goldleaf Studios. You can see more about Irena's work at his website, irenawiley.com. Our voice actors for today were Cassidy Cash of That Shakespeare Life, a podcast which you should definitely go check out, Daniel Hutchinson, and Kelly Therese Pollock of Unsung History, another podcast you should definitely go check out. Our original music is, as always, by the amazing Andrew Cody, and the quotations that you heard from Irena's voice come from her memoir, Around the Globe in 20 Years, published in 1962 by David McKay and Company. Thanks for listening, and please, once again, help us find more about Irena's story. <laughs>